Welcome back to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thanks for being here. It's nice to have you. I hope you're healthy. I hope you're well. I hope you're enjoying spring. We're sliding in the summer. At least that's what it feels like in my neck of the woods. I'm grateful for the enthusiasm about the last episode of this here podcast where we dove into the working life of Scott Williams, AKA DJ Sad Eagle, my Cornish pal, my neighbor in my building. I got a bunch of DMs about the live set that he recorded exclusively for this podcast. It is indeed quite an adventure. You're right, I've listened to it a few times. Look, Scott's a wild and weird guy. I like him. He takes people on adventures. And I'm thrilled that you joined us in conversation. And I'm glad that you stuck around to listen to the set that he put together. (laughs) I got even more DMs from listeners who are interested in the joint that was sparked on the last episode. Inquiring minds want to know, did I partake? Alas, my friends, I regret to inform you that I can hardly hold down my part of a conversation with Scott when stone cold sober. Yo, I wish I was cool enough to be a stone podcaster. Now look, I'm not claiming sainthood here. I'm just being honest. Nope to dope on podcasts. Listen, I might confess that I've been a wee bit pie-eyed on the hooch for one or two episodes, but not yet have I mowed grass on this podcast. Now don't go judging a brother by his choice of unhealthy escape. Some dudes just prefer to wet their whistle with a glass of liquid courage, while others prefer to pass the peace pipe. No need to judge. Also got a couple interesting messages about my guest's Cornish identity. Seems like a couple listeners went down the Cornish versus English rabbit hole. Some of y'all sent me some fun facts about Cornwall. A listener called Elizabeth sent me some Cornish joke. Hold on, let me pull this thing up. I shouldn't try to (laughs) tell this joke because it requires an accent. So I don't really do accents, but I'm gonna give it that old Midwestern effort just to share Elizabeth's joke here. So a farmer in Cornwall sees a bloke drinking from his stream. What's on? You don't want to be drinking that just for the horse pissing cow shit. And the bloke says, I'm from London and I just purchased a property in the village. Can you speak a bit slower, please? So the farmer replies, Oh, right. If you use two hands, you won't spill any water. There you go. There's a joke about Cornwall. You see, the Cornish don't dig the moneyed English coming down and buying up their properties. It's a Cornwall joke. Again, sorry about the accent. I warned you. Don't message me about it. I don't want to hear it. I already know. I should probably cut that out of this, but I want to illustrate to you how shite I am at doing accents. But season seven has not been shite at all. Indeed, season seven has explored the working lives of artists in Berlin, LA, DC, Cornwall, and today we'll be dancing with the Bashkir, born in Russia, raised in Barcelona, and living in London. And this global ambition for the podcast was born out of a working roundtable discussion 
on which podcast patron Richie Schwartz participated. And look, if you're a regular listener and you want to guide the vision of this here podcast, head over to patreon.com slash for living, support the project, stay in touch with me, and help me fine tune this machine I'm trying to drive here. Oh, hey, kids, look, we got another new patron. Big shout out to Jeff Stein, who's supporting this podcast from up on the north side of Chi-Town, USA. Thanks, Jeff, for your support. You're a good man with fantastic taste in podcasts, I might add. Oh, and Mr. Stein, just be warned, I might try to sucker you on to this here podcast to participate in the working roundtable that I record at the end of this season. There will be some friendly faces to join you there. Wait, can I just say before we roll here that podcast patron Richie Schwartz, who I just mentioned, he was also a guest on the podcast and he was discussing his work as a TV producer in Hollywood, USA. Richie just launched season two of his show, Woke. And my friends, it is fantastic. Kudos to you and your team, Richie. Woke is clever, it's cutting, and it's critically important. I'm excited to see you at the Oscars. I bet you look great in the tux. Is there like an Oscars for podcasting? Not saying I should win one, but is there like the potties or something? I hope it's not the potties. I'll look it up. Hold on. Podcast awards. Ah, they call them the People's Choice Podcast Awards established in 2005. Well, I don't know that I'll be earning a People's Choice Podcast Award anytime soon, but if I do, it might well be for today's conversation, because today I'm going to be diving into the working life of dancer and choreographer Alina Akhmatova. She was my student in Barcelona some 17 years ago. She was and remains a total enigma. We talk about dance as a long-form community practice, as a form of empathic engagement, and as a path to healing. And you should definitely stick around till the end, because I wrote and recorded a song about that, which I'll debut at the end of this episode. The conversation is full of surprises, the song is full of surprises, and then, even after the song, there are yet more surprises. I dare say this episode is extraordinary from beginning to end. So please, join me in conversation with dancer and choreographer Alina Akhmatova. Alina Akhmatova, welcome to For Living. It is such a pleasure to be here with you. How do you describe what you do? How do I describe it? I would say that mostly I dance. I dance with people. I invite people to dance with me. I choreograph. I teach. Um, I, and in the teaching, I kind of try to create an environment where people can get to know different facets of their anatomy that they might not know about or different ways of dancing with other bodies in the space that could be new. So yeah, creating these experiences with bodies. I can't wait to learn more about it. But before I do, can you do me a favor and just kind of walk me along your path? Like, when did you know that you had to be a dancer? Yes, I, I didn't know that I had to be. Um, it all actually took me by surprise. 
I don't come from a family where there was ballet uh, every day or this kind of thing. My family wasn't about that. But maybe you remember this because you went there with me. Um, I worked in a soup kitchen in Barcelona, uh, Maria Teresa down down Las Ramblas. I was maybe 16 when I started that. No, I think it was 15. The did through 16 and uh, 17 was when you came there with me. After that was happening, like the leftover food that would be there, I would take it around. And one of those days, I also stumbled on, there was a street really close by in the Raval, and there was a small flamenco studio. And in that studio, there was an amazing woman called Katya Moro. And she was... Uh, from the south of Spain. She was a tiny, tiny woman full of fire. She was, she was just amazing. <laughs> she was so good. I just was in awe when I was watching her. And then I said, can I come to your class sometime? <laughs> and I think she was like, what is this girl? And then she said, yeah, come. And I mean, she could tell that I was a complete beginner and I, I didn't know what I was doing. I I mean, I'm lucky enough that my body is super flexible and I have quite a good body coordination. But of course, for flamenco, you need very fast feet and you need a very articulated kind of arms. It's it's just a very intense focus, actually, with flamenco. So she, but anyway, she took me under her wing. She was like, all right, <laughs> Miss Floaty One, you can go. Da, 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 da. So um, we, we did flamenco. Uh, it was normally the Saturday evenings after the soup kitchen. So that was my Saturday. And I was continuing with her until I left Spain. Anyway, sorry, I'm, this is me rambling already. No, this is great. Yeah, okay. I got into university when I was uh, 17. And there in my uni, again, I had come in as an English language and English literature student uh, with like a, a small like sub of drama. My degree had nothing to do with dance, actually. But... Uh, one night I stumbled in, there was lots of different like little pockets of activity, um, lots of different societies. And one of those was dance society. And on Thursday evening, I went to a room that was normally like a, a lecture hall. So we would always push all the tables to the sides and uh, all the chairs to the sides. And there was carpets and there would be like 50 girls <laughs> dancing really really fast hip-hop that I had no idea what I I didn't ever practice that before Uh, and I loved it I I was terrible I was definitely like probably the biggest embarrassment in that room but I loved it so much I loved it so much I think that most of them had gone to like street dance classes and lots they had trained uh, since they were little I hadn't so obviously there was moments which is just so hilarious like the whole group is going to the left and I'm going to the right so everyone is lying down I'm standing up everyone's <laughs> it's like I'm doing the reverse of what every single person's doing <laughs> so like a total fool but it's it's quite lucky that I'm not that easy to get completely ashamed and run away and hide like I just really loved it but what was good about it all is that I stuck with it and the routines that they would teach, I would never pick them up in the class, but in the university corridor, I would be practicing every day. And slowly, slowly, I think that the the, the captain or whatever, she saw that, okay, this girl, she doesn't know exactly what she's doing, but she comes back and she knows a lot of the routine. So I think that she kept her eye. And then 
they said, do you want to be in the, in the show that we have in January? And I said, yes, I will do it. So we learned lots of different routines. Most of them were hip hop. And, um, and I loved it so much. <laughs> what did you love about it? <laughs> I just loved it. I don't know how to explain it. I just loved it. Just the energy, being with people. Hmm. Because dance is really social art form as well. You're never just there on your own. There's always kind of a community. But I think that all of these things just suited my, yeah, they just suited me. And yeah, I don't know. Just uh, I, Does this answer anything? Yeah, it, it surely does. It seems to have suited you quite perfectly, so much so that you, after finishing your undergraduate work, studying English and drama. If I'm not mistaken, didn't you go on to pursue a master's of, was it yes. dance? Yes. Well, it wasn't dance. It was physical theater. But there's actually maybe a, a step that I should tell you about before that, because in my university, in the third year, there was an incredible module and it was part of the drama department. And it was called History of 20th Century Western Dance. It was led by a woman called Libby Worth. And it just rocked my world. It was once a week on a Tuesday morning. It was just incredible. And that was the first time I got, I got exposure to Pina Bausch. This actually changed everything for me. Because when I saw the videos of Pina Bausch and the Rites of Spring and Café Mueller, this changed everything for me. Because it wasn't just about you do a routine. It was actually dance as a political act and dance as a way of raising people's awareness and communicating what words fail to communicate. I don't know much about Pina Bausch. I know that she's a German dancer. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about what she has come to mean to you. Mm -hmm. Pina Bausch, she is, you could say she's the mother of dance theater these days. She was born in West Germany, and she was a war baby. So this was the 1940s. And she was a student of Kurt Jus, and he was the father of Ausdrucksdance. Yeah. And her extremely experimental approach towards dance, which took it outside of all kinds of classical canon. Basically, Pina Bausch was showing relationships on stage, and she was showing these emotions on stage. She had extremely highly skilled trained dancers who you know they can do 12 pirouettes and they 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 have all this technical training in order to do very high level modern dance but often she actually was asking them to do things like carry one another or to boil and peel an egg or to touch somebody with tenderness or what tenderness means to you so she she would often begin her processes with asking people questions and seeing what the dancers would come up with instead of saying five, six, seven, eight, you know. And also you should know that in the beginning, a lot of people would walk out from her work. They would say this is like the biggest nonsense. Um, some of the reviews would say things like, the music is really great if you close your eyes, you know, so they, they really hated on her a bit but she persisted with her vision she persisted with doing something very unusual on stage and this 
created an incredible company and also an incredible vision for what dance can be. And it was this vision that, that I saw when I saw Café Mueller, when I saw the Rites of Spring. I think that this for me just never went away in terms of, yeah, in terms of what bodies can say. So I look forward to learning more from you about what bodies can say and how the form offers this window into expression. When you describe your respect and affinity for Pina Bausch, things become a bit more clear to me, right? Like the political dimensions of it, the experimentation and the vulnerability and the interplay between people and the way things are challenging. I have the good fortune of knowing you a bit and your description of her, it makes it a little more clear to me what the appeal of dance was and is to you. So I guess I kind of wonder how you in your work create that type of environment that you saw on stage when you saw Pina Bausch's performances. How do you create an environment for dancers where they can feel connected, where they can feel empowered to experiment, uh, where you can challenge them and allow them to feel vulnerable, but make sure that they know they can feel safe in that space? Like, how do you do that? The first thing that you do is create the right environment of the space that shows people that you respect them and you care about them. For example, if the floor is dirty, you will clean it. That's actually a ritual I've brought to every project that I've led or co-led on. Like, I, I clean the floor. <laughs> That's also my own ritual for entering the rehearsal. I just feel like, okay, I'm cleaning the space. Make sure that people can roll around on it and they don't feel disgusted. And I mean, like when I roll on a dirty floor, I, I tend to feel like, ugh. So I don't want other people to experience that when they work with me. So I, I try that the best of, to my ability that the, the space is clean. Um, and yeah, you, I think you have to feel the people and see where everybody is because you can come in with some grand idea that you want to create, you know, an earthquake in the middle of the room, but you also need to see what are the physical ramifications of each participant and how can I invite them also into this rather than imposing my, my grand artistic idea? You know, this, this is really important. Um, yeah. I mean, I could be wrong, but I think that from the testimonials that most of the people who worked with me give is that I bring quite a soft touch, but quite focused as well. It's, you have to create a sort of atmosphere in the room where we're all working on this one thing who are more elderly or who have different uh, physical limitations, you do it with them and try to feel into their body and what they could be living and then you adapt it for them. Or you show them how to do something on all fours if they don't want to do it standing or against a wall if that's difficult or on a chair. And I remember also because I, I did go through a really rigorous dance training in Germany in my 20s and there were times when I was super injured and I I couldn't use my legs. So I did only the arms. I went to every class still. Like, I think my teachers thought I was a lunatic. They're like, you know, most students would just stay at home, Melina. <laughs> but I would come and bring my chair to every class and just do the arms, you know? <laughs> so, um, and I learned something through that as well. 
the arms and the upper body. So then I try to think um, if I have somebody in my class who's elderly or less able, how can I make that game for them and try to make that still somehow fun for them and that they can be engaged. Before the pandemic, one of my biggest tools was touch and contact between the groups. So a lot of the warm-ups would focus on being in touch with one another, either in pairs or trios or quartets or the whole group altogether. And it still it still strikes me because I've I've always been quite a touch person. I've always really enjoyed giving long hugs and receiving them. Um, and I always noticed that somehow something would just shift with the group when this would be brought in. For example, there was an immersive show that I did a couple of years back and the director asked me, can you, can you just lead warm-ups before every rehearsal? And I said, yes. And everyone said to me that this brought such a big social cohesion because it was silly and we were playing and we were crossing space as if we were bears who were wrestling one another or we, you know, it was just fun because people risk them to be silly together, but in touch and then everybody's doing it. It, it breaks down a lot of barriers and masks and kind of false selves like, oh, we're here to make serious art. No, we're here right, right. rolling. I'm going to roll you like a sack of potatoes or now we're bears or now we're like <laughs> a two-year-old child having a tantrum and I have to get you to school. And everybody said that this, this was just a way of making a really connected group. Do you do lots of exercises like that? Like everybody's got to be a scared bear in the woods now or everybody's got to be, you know, an egg being shaken in a carton. Do you, do you do these types of exercises and do you have favorite ones? I like to use imagery when we're creating. And I think that imagery helps to ignite people's imagination in the way that um, their bodies then are doing things that they thought they were not capable of. It works a lot for me as a dancer as well, and it works when I'm teaching class. It's always worked on me, and therefore I think I transmit it. It's, it's, it's ways of accessing different facets of yourself that in, in a normal daily life, you know. Does that make sense? Yeah. What types of images do you conjure up in order to elicit specific reactions from your dancers? Depends on what you want to create. If, if the instruction has been make an earthquake for me, for example, there's a very certain kind of body quality that will go with this. And then it will just be about changing the frequency, changing the speed, getting half of the room to do it, or one person stopping and doing it alone, or, you know, this kind of thing. But it really, it really depends because other projects had nothing to do with this. I try to also bring in artworks that I see, or I guess you could call them collateral resources that could inspire. For example, I'll bring in a painting of a wife, or I will bring in... Um, recently, actually, I made a piece where we were just walking for about 15 minutes. Um, but it was actually a very political piece about the state of my country at this time. I can't talk too much about it. it makes me very sad what happens there. And I got them to see some images from Bill Viola, where a man is being set on fire and he just has to sit there and there's nothing you can do. And then I also showed them images from an old Russian film where there was uh, milk being poured onto the table and there's nothing you can do it's all being poured all over the table it goes everywhere 
and you're inept to stop any of it. It just, it just pours. This was kind of the feelings that were inside of me at that time. And therefore, I guess when I have a very strong sensation like that, I try to find, I don't know if it's a poetic image or so, but an image that embodies how I feel. And then we use that image to, to make work with it. And sometimes, like in this piece, we literally, we were drinking kefir and it was pouring down our faces. I can show you some of that later. Yeah, perhaps we can link to that in the show notes. I've not seen that. and No one's seen it. I haven't, I haven't put it online yet for various reasons. Okay. Maybe by the time this airs, we could post it. But it's a challenging concept, right? Clearly, you're trying to say something. And we'll come back to the politics of it all momentarily. But before we do, I hope to get into this curiosity that I have about the role of inspiration. I know that politics is but one inspiration that you have in your work. Can you talk about the role of inspiration in your practice as a dancer? What inspires me when we're going into rehearsal, for example? Yeah. Um, often it's, it's a feeling state and it's a feeling that you can't verbalize. And therefore, how to physicalize that and how to make that, yeah, how to make that felt, how to communicate that, but again, through the body, not through something that you say, even if you are talking while you're dancing, you know, it's, um, I also very much get inspired by the people that I'm in the room with. So for every time that would be very different because oftentimes it would be different people. Alina, you said something that I want to tap into. It was just a phrase, but it kind of rattled me a bit you're talking about the physicalizing of a feeling Mm. and I'm hoping you might be willing to talk about like the challenges and the opportunities presented in the effort to physicalize a feeling Mm. I mean all of our bodies contain stories there's really interesting research being done right now into the, the world of fascia. Maybe, have you heard about it? Fascia? Tell me. F-A-S-C-I-A. Fascia. Okay. So, you know, a chicken breast, when you're cutting it, and there's like a membrane around it that's quite tough, but see-through as well? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that's the fascia. And fascia is a part of our body system that there's been a lot of research into it, but it's still kind of this unknown. And actually, I have this wonderful teacher called Kevin O'Connor, and he says, all right, everyone, so fascia is like an alien. <laughs> and it's, it's an alien that's trying to help you, but it will do what you do. It will not do what you say. So, for example, if you're craning over your computer for 50 million hours, your fascia will start to create a hard lump at the back of your neck in order to help your neck and your head to stay upright um, because of all the extra forces and pressures that are exerted. Yeah? So, And there's growing research that says that it's our fascia that actually holds memories and trauma. And the first thing that I will often do in any kind of warm-up situation is shaking. And so your bones are jiggling, your muscles are shaking you are shaking and your fascia shakes with you and it can be a really good way to first of all like if you're running in from the busyness of any city like when we're in London I encourage people everybody can shake out the the stress of London like 
you can let it go and you know we're shaking then the the spine we're shaking the leg we're shaking the other one uh, we go upside down shaking and and a lot of the time people are like what the hell is this in the beginning and then afterwards people say can we please do it again all of this is to say that there are so many things that are first of all stored through the body and that the body might have not had a chance to express in other in other ways in other moments or other parts of life and i think that when the body gets moving often there's yeah there's ways to process those things and with the fascia there's growing research that there's just a lot of these memories and then when you get moving in a particular way you can remember things that you didn't think about since you were three years old hmm. am i making any sense you are making perfect sense, especially to your audience of one right now, because I am a devotee to the fascia rollers. Mm -hmm. I have two different ones for my back. I got a smaller one for my feet. Mm -hmm. I have two that look like dog bones that sort of like slide up and down my spine. Mm -hmm. And those things have increased my quality of life yes. tremendously. I have bought them for no fewer than a dozen people. And I didn't know what fascia are, <laughs> mm -hmm. but there's gotta be something to what you're saying. Moreover, I will express my identification with what you're saying by telling you that about two years ago, I started to begin my workouts, many of which are pretty intense, kind of by shaking a lot. Mm -hmm. I, I run in place like, you know, like fast feet. Like that's like my last major warm up. And I let my whole body shake. Like I just like feel my muscles and bones kind of tremble a little bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I believe what you're saying. I think that there's something there and it's, uh, it's heartening to know that science is looking into it because, mm. <laughs> because there's got to be some truth to it. Yes. I'm really glad that science is looking into it. And I think that also the more that it gets incorporated into people's lives. I mean, this attention towards your body, what it needs and finding a way to address that, for example, for you with rolling, with shaking before you do workouts. I think that this improves people's lives so much. There's, there's an old saying, what is it? Anima sano and corpo sano, healthy spirits and a healthy body. And I really believe that so much. And like when we were in school, you know, when we had to sit all day, like no, humans aren't made for sitting, as you know, like it's just, it's so bad for you. And then that's, that's such a big part of what dance has given me, actually, to feel my body. That is a huge part of healing a lot of things. And I think that the more I can share that with people, the better. Can we talk a little bit about the relationship between dance and healing? All art heals on some level, but it seems to me, whereas the painter might have uh, enjoyed a sense of repair or a sense of healing having done the painting. We ordinarily don't get to see the painter in their process. Mm -hmm. We don't get to see them heal. The The performing arts are, are different in this way and dance is unique in this way. 
Can you talk about the ways in which dance helps to heal you? I think it goes back to it being mostly a social practice, actually. You know, you might want to call what I do like a, a form of long form community practice, getting together a group of people who want to move, and then every week or every day or whatever the project entails that we move together for this time. This creates connection in a space. And a lot of the exercises would be about you start to feel kinesthetic empathy with people. You start to feel how it can be inside of this body. And I think that it actually creates unity in that sense. And then also you can talk a lot about it. You know, ancient cultures always had rituals and a lot of those rituals were people coming together to dance and to shake and to have a moment of like collective ecstasy. And those were, those were cathartic. I think that we don't have so many rituals these days. Well, I don't know, my culture doesn't have so many rituals these days and that, that go back to, yeah, this collective joy that you get when a group of people dances together. Part of why we grieved so much in the pandemic Coming back to the question of how it heals, I think that because it got me so deeply attuned to a body that I would often leave behind in a pursuit of like getting really, really, really good grades so I could get out of the house, go to university, get really, really good grades, go and get a good job. Like, you know, I, I definitely left my body behind so many times and therefore it was carrying a lot of stories that it just never, it just, it just held on to them. And there's a really interesting book. Uh, it's called The Body Keeps the Score um, by a man called Basel. And yeah, it, it talks about how we, how our bodies actually remember everything, even things our memories or our mind, our conscious mind has forgotten. So, Oh, that's a fascinating thesis. You should read the book. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. Sometimes I have to put it down because it can be really you know, it can bring up things and get very intense, but um, there's a there's a big world out there that's really into researching this right now. Alina, I have to say I'm enamored by and intrigued with this notion of kinesthetic empathy, and I'm reasonably certain I'm going to buy and marginally less certain that I'm going to read The Body Keeps the Score. It sounds like something I need to investigate. And I really respect and admire how you talk about the sensory dynamics of what you do and the community practice in which you're engaged. But I know that there's another side to it as well. And while it might be like less romantic on some level, dancing can be very technical. So what I'd like you to do is kind of talk about, if you would be so kind, how dancing is simultaneously a sense and a feeling. And it's also this technical thing and how you balance the technical and the sensory dynamics mm -hmm. of your work. Yes. There's so many different kinds of techniques. Like if we go to balletic technique, that's one thing, but there's also floor work technique. There's also contact improvisation technique. There's also just your own techniques for being a facilitator and holding a space for lots of people. 
when you're dancing in contact with people, if you use the wrong technique, you could really injure somebody. You wouldn't launch yourself onto someone's knee or onto other vulnerable parts of their body, which you could harm with your body. Like that's the last thing that we want. So, and also when you're doing floor work, there's really different landing pads that you can use from your body that with the soft that you have, you protect all the hard, you know, so that you don't have a, a fight with the floor because the floor will always win, you know, that's one thing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, mm, for example, we had some immersive shows recently where a lot of the people that were involved, there were some professional dancers, but there was a lot of people who had never danced and they had never uh, performed on stage before. But I, I mean, I'm still very much believe in that proverb that if you can talk, you can sing. If you can walk, you can dance. And then I tried to make that come alive somehow inside of my own teaching in those workshops. And there are certain small ways, for example, like how to get into and out of the floor using an economy of effort so that you're not always loading onto your quadriceps, for example, how to place your feet, at which point do you expand, at which point do you uh, come more into cohesion, you collect yourself, which part of yourself do you collect at the right moment so that you can stand up, so that you can get down, so that you can be on your partner's body and then throw yourself off it and come back, you know. And I think that something that really made me so happy is that, so in the testimonials, normally they will say that she's a very gentle person, but she will insist on a technique, but she will show you how to do and execute like a complicated technique safely so that you don't injure yourself. Because um, as I've been a performer now since now it's 11 years, I've also injured myself in performances many times and not only, and I wanted to make a way that when we do something, we warm up properly, we have a moment together and we, we are very aware and present with one another when we're going into performance. So it's not every man for himself, thank you. And also, if you want to do this very particular technique of like falling onto the floor really fast, repetitively, as you will have to perform that for the next two or three weeks, sometimes twice a day, you want to be able to do that in a way that your body doesn't get harmed and that you do it in a way that you can continue. Because what you really want is to continue, you know, you don't want to stop dancing when you're 35. And unfortunately, that's also a big trend that I see is that a lot of people get super injured or their body goes into shutdown from over-exercising and overdoing it. And then also not taking the proper care, not cooling down afterwards, not celebrating what they did well and that they don't harm themselves or they don't harm each other as well, but also that they get somewhere in terms of the technique that you spoke about so that they learn how to do things with their bodies that they couldn't do before and that they can transmit things that they couldn't do before either. Does that answer anything? It does. And it also inspired a question. Mm. You had said that line oft quoted that if you can talk, you can sing. And if you can, can walk, walk, you, you can, can dance. dance. It's a Zimbabwean proverb. Yeah. Well, in the lead up to our conversation, I was kind of thinking about like, what are the common aphorisms and sayings that like we tend to use in talking about dance? Like I was thinking like, what are the dance metaphors that we have? And that is one of two that came to my mind. And the second one 
is by a, a countryman of mine, Mark Twain. And you've heard it a million times, right? Like, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, seeing like no one's listening, love like you've never been hurt, dance like no one's watching, mm. and uh, live like it's heaven on earth. I, I got to be pretty close on that one. But then I was thinking about you vis-a-vis -vis Mark Twain's challenge to us. We hear people say this all the time, you know, dance like you do when nobody's watching. But you, Alina, you dance for an audience. And I hope that we can talk about that. So maybe we should start here. You know, dance is a performing art. Mm. And I want to know how the audience, broadly speaking, informs your performance. Mm. Mm. Well... The kinesthetic empathy that we talked about earlier is really important. And it's about, I don't know if this will make any sense if I say it that way, but it's about taking people through you. Yes. So they can live it through you. If you're, if you're jumping against the wall, if you're falling on the floor, if you're jumping on your partner or he's jumping on you or you're carrying him, you take the audience with you, through you, by you everywhere. Yes. So, so that if, if people are sitting and watching, they feel their own body as if they're living that with you as well. Mm? Does that make any sense? Yes. So all this immersive work that I got drawn into and that I loved so much, a lot of it has to do with the pleasure of that somehow because the audience is in proximity to you. So you can feel them and you can also see their eyes and you can see their body and how they are moving, adjusting. And you just, you just have a feeling for them somehow. Mm -hmm. I've always preferred that actually. And I've also have to say that I've preferred smaller theaters. Like when we were dancing in Munich, for example, we were on Gasteig stage with, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of audience. And it was the same when I performed a piece that I made on a big stage in Florence. It was an honor and a super big privilege every single time. However, what really bugged me every single time was that you can't see people's eyes. You can't see people's faces. There's just enormous bright lights in your face that are blinding you. You can't see past them. So in the end, it kind of feels like you're dancing alone. And that has never been my jam. I can do it, yeah. I don't enjoy it as much as smaller scale, more intimate happenings, you know. The whole purpose of it is to communicate something through you and to take people on a journey with you and they experience something in their own body through watching you. It's not just, oh, virtuoso performer can jump very high, great. Yes, it's really good. And if you can take people with you while you jump so high, then it, to me, that has a lot of value. But if you're doing it just to show off, nah, <laughs> nah. I, I at least don't find it so interesting. Can you talk about what it feels like to catch an audience member's eye in the throes of an intense performance? <laughs> it's very intense. <laughs> <laughs> it's very yeah. intense because often people will be crying or, or you'll see people's face change in a way that you've never seen them before, if it's somebody that you know as well. Or, or maybe you're actually dancing about something that you never could talk about, but you realize actually they understand what happened. Because hmm. like I told you, I think bodies communicate so much. It's just very hard for the body to hide things. And there's just less masking. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I have a rather particular curiosity. And if it pushes into anything that makes you uncomfortable, please just tell me and we'll find another path for our discussion. But I have this imagination of you on stage and there's an audience. Let's say it's, you know, a small to medium sized audience, the type that makes you more comfortable. There's an intimacy there. You can see your audience. And you're doing your work. You're performing. You're dancing. And because of the ways in which your body inspires your mind, a certain consciousness emerges, maybe a memory emerges, maybe a feeling emerges, and you become conscious of that feeling. But you're simultaneously probably quite conscious of this audience for whom you're performing. Can you explore with me the problem of consciousness in performance? Hmm. Hmm. Do you know, for example, the, the Sufi wording dervishes and how they would spin for hours at a time and then it would bring them to an altered state of consciousness where there isn't really a sense of the self anymore and there's a unity, you know, the I am not I. Yeah. It happens to me a lot with improvisation as well, where you can completely forget who you are. You can forget the I-ness of it all. You can uh, suddenly you are the room and the room is you. And also everybody there is also coming through you. Probably I sound mad, but that happens. I don't think you sound mad at all. I think that's what every club goer wants or, you know, every concert goer, you know, who's going to the concert to move. I mean, I, I think so many of us can identify with that ambition and that feeling. Mm -hmm. I think the difference is that you have made this a central part of your life and you have become expert in the pursuit of the ecstasy of the whirling dervish. I don't, I don't call myself... I don't call myself an expert in this. Okay. But I would say that I would say that when you ask about a good day, that's a good day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good day. When the I has disappeared. Mm. That's when it's a good day. Yes. I dig that. I chase that too. But can I ask about the audience? Because it also sounds, if I'm hearing you right, that a good day is when the I is gone. But a good day is also when the audience is fully present and their eyes are on you. Does that encapsulate the goal in a performance so that it's no I and it's all for and about them? Or maybe it's some kind of usness. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but an us without an I. It's a we. Yeah. Hmm. It's come up once or twice in my conversations with 
artists for the podcast, uh, you're probably at the very least aware of the painter Philip Guston. Tell me more. In dealing with the problem of consciousness and imagination, Guston is uh, you know, quoted as saying something like, uh, when I get to the studio, everyone is there. You know, my parents, all of my teachers, my friends and neighbors, my loved ones and exes, everyone's there. And as I continue to do my work, one by one, they sort of dissipate into thin air and I'm left alone in the room. But on a beautiful day in the studio, I disappear also. Mm. And I've tried to let that inform my creative work. I've also tried to let it inform my parenting in a way, but that's a, a, a different topic of conversation. But I'm curious as to the degree to which and the ways in which you identify with Philip Guston in that way, bearing in mind that what Guston does is this very solitary artistic pursuit. And what you do is very much a community-oriented mm. pursuit. It's a collective pursuit with the dancers on stage. So can you talk to me about that a little bit? I mean, I, th I think that one of the most beautiful things that has happened, there was an incredible project that we did with a woman called Jo Fong, and it was called Ways of Being Together. And it was 50 of us, most of us were people of color or people who are otherwise marginalized in, let's say, the mainstream culture. It was in Shoresh Town Hall. And it was just a ginormous party <laughs> when we all got up on stage. We, a lot of us didn't know what even was going to happen. Like we had gone through different parts of structure. But it, essentially, you don't know what's going to happen. So you just trust and you, you feel what everybody, like you have to kind of be one beast together. Yeah. In the end, it was so much falling and rolling and catching and lifting and then shaking together and then dirging across the stage and also inviting the audience in to make it a party with them. It was uh, it's completely possible, even on a huge collective scale, that the eye goes away. And then it's just a big party. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> yeah, that sounds ecstatic. Yeah. And it sounds really playful too. Mm -hmm. And I know that you're a very playful person. And so I devised an idea that I, I hope is clever, but it might be totally misguided. Let's try. I, I want to play something like a word association game with you. I'll ask how your work relates to a word I reveal. Oh. It'll be fun. Will you play with me? Yeah, okay. I have a few of them. Okay. The first one is freedom. How does your work relate to freedom? Freedom to move my body in the way that I want to. Can I ask, as someone who admittedly doesn't have some of the kinesthetic intelligence or capacity that you do. I really want to know what it feels like 
to have the freedom to move your body the way you want to? I don't, it feels great. <laughs> I'll never I'm know. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I'll bet. No, but no, it's it's nothing about I'll never know. I don't believe in this. I really, I believe everyone can dance and everyone should have the space and the rights and opportunity to. Yeah. So the first one was freedom. This is going to be a fun game. I'm going to like this. The second word, humor. Loads of cheekiness. And I think the most fun that I've had in dance is when we don't take it so seriously. I, I also, I mean, I did a ballet for maybe five years. I began when I was 23 and I did it in Munich. And I think that the only time I really, really had fun in, in a ballet setting was when we actually, I just pretended, you know, I pretended that I was this different kind of being every day. And I tried to inject it with some humor because otherwise I felt so serious and I, and I couldn't, I just couldn't handle like how serious everyone was <laughs> and how serious all the faces were that they forced us to wear all black. And they said, my, like, I should tape my tits and like your body is this and that. And I was just like, no, I, I, I'm sorry, but no, I just don't agree because I started so late because I have boobs and a bum because my body doesn't conform to the standard dance body in certain spaces. I could have also just been like, oh, they're right. But I knew that they weren't. It's bullshit. And uh, I think that it therefore took a lot of humor somehow to be like, all right, that's that's your understanding and your world of contemporary dance. But I also know that there's another world out there and I am going to be part of making it. I think that if you didn't have some humor in this profession and you always took it and yourself so seriously, it would be a real drag. It would be really sad. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. Yeah. Next one. Yeah. Politics. Mm. I mean, there's so many different ways to see this. Because on the one hand, you can use dance and body movements to say things that you'd normally be censored for saying. But still, people feel... People feel... And maybe that's the point. And then the other aspects out of many is that because what I'm doing and the way that I invite people into what I'm doing, it's a way of creating community and it's a way to help people to be seen and to see each other. I mean, I think between everybody that there's just this very common humanity that we're witnessing and we give space to and it, we allow it to exist inside of ourselves and we're present with our body, but we allow it to also coexist as individual entities, but together. So I think that that creates this kind of cohesion that maybe is, perhaps I could be wrong, but perhaps it's at odds with this divisiveness that I see so much of in the UK now with brexit for example does that make any sense yes ma'am because what i because what i what i feel what i feel so angered by is that there's this lack of tenderness and lack of reciprocity lack of diversity lack of opportunity for so many people lack of accountability together and lack of care and not just for each other but like the wider world and the natural world and 
I think because those things make me so angry, I want to create spaces where I address some of that lack and I try to make space for the things that are lacking and make space for care and tenderness and make space for people of every kind of color to be there and people who who don't feel safe in the, the usual dance spaces and who wouldn't want to go to a ballet class to be told like, you're to this or to that, or you're to this or to that, or just not enough. I really try to make the contexts feel welcoming and even if it's in a small way, you know, but I do think that that creates changes, you know, like micro changes. There's a really beautiful thing that I saw on the wall in Berlin. And I also saw it when I was doing a, a social project in Chincha, where we were, we taught there for three months and we made a mini tour with some of the break dancers there in, in, in Peru. And I remember it said, Mucha gente pequeña en lugares pequeños, haciendo pequeñas cosas, pueden cambiar el mundo. Translating as lots of small people in little places, doing small things have the capacity to change the world. Yeah. I love your response. And I'm loving our little game here. Can we do one more? Yes. Sensuality. <laughs> what about it? How does your work relate to sensuality? It relates to sensuality and that people are given space to sense in and create an environment where they sense in not just to their own body but also to the bodies around alina thank you so much for playing that game with me it went really well you won the game you are a winner i don't know about winning anything but it was fun <laughs> i knew you would be averse to my even suggesting that <laughs> and i know you don't see the world in terms of winners and losers. You don't really live in that black and white type of universe. But I do sort of wonder, is there a performance of yours that really stands ahead above the rest? Like what was your best dance performance and what did you learn from it? I, I think it was the last one. And I feel that way because it was the first time I've danced in a large group of people since the pandemic hit. It was amazing as well because it was a collaboration with uh, this artist called Yulia Krilova and she had over the lockdown to not go crazy. She had all these coffee bags that she recycled and created clothes out of them. And also there was all these bicycle parts that uh, bike shops were throwing out and then she put those into the costume. So that was already like, it's amazing what she created. But also she brought in this incredible choreographer called Marie Gabriel and Roti who's a Buto dancer and just an amazing, warm and just such an amazing woman. And, um, and we created a piece called The Cycle. And there was the first part of it was the birth cycle, then the living and then the death cycle. And then the aftermath, which is the robot apocalypse, where I got to basically become a robot <laughs> and dance as a robot for like nine minutes. And because we had rehearsed in quite a short time frame with the amount of people that we had, the last moments of like, you know, you're a robot that was completely improvised. And there was other people also improvising the robot dance. And I just remember feeling completely swept off and just what we talked about earlier, this disappearance of yourself and this complete feeling into what it could be like to be an automaton, to be a machine, to be a robot. And 
You became the machine, huh? I became a machine <laughs> and I liked it. Or at least, at least I moved in a way that I hadn't experienced before. And I was like, damn, this actually suits me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just terrible, terrifying. <laughs> but, um, but also it's that we finally all got to jam together after freaking 18 months of coronavirus, like 18 months of our industry being basically decimated. You know, yeah. you know what I mean? So to have like a full audience and a lot of people on stage and all of us falling, rolling, like this was a party. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Alina, that sounds really cathartic. And I'm so glad that you and yours are back on stage. I know how COVID ravaged the community, but it seems to me that committing one's life and soul and spirit to the arts is almost inherently problematic. I, I guess I wonder what you deem to be the essential problem of dance. I think that as our industry is coming back, there's some systems that really need to get overhauled radically. We need people of color, differently abled, neurodivergent, non-cisgendered, LGBTQI folk within the leadership in dance. Those are voices that need to get listened to carefully and regularly and for that to spark change in action. And then obviously the financial structures to overhaul because oftentimes what happens is that the money doesn't actually get trickled down to the artists who actually create and perform the work, which means that if you're ever going to try to live off this, you're usually spinning 500 plates at a time trying to survive financially, especially in a place like London, which is so expensive. And what that really means is that for artists to have the freedom to risk and create and then even fail and rebuild again, oftentimes there's just like living in fear that one failure or one bad show could mean the end of their career, that they don't get funding anymore. People need to feel safe if they're going to create work together or if they're going to even feel safe enough to move their body freely, this is the baseline that people need. I have to confess to you that I must have been wrong because I had long perhaps assumed, and that must be my error, that the space that has been created for dancers was perhaps one of the more open, welcoming spaces for people of color and the LGBTQIA communities and people f from around the world. I, 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 uh, it's quite frustrating to learn that my, my assumption to that end was wrong. And I, I trust that with more people like you in leadership roles in the community, that more voices and more bodies will feel more welcome and more free. And look, that's just something I got wrong about dancing. It just depends on the kind of spaces you're talking about, because for sure that there are places like that which do exist, and I'm so happy to be part of many of them. But if you're talking about like a lot of the high salaried companies, like if you look at top five or whatever choreographers in Britain, it's usually like a white boys club. No one feels comfortable with that. Uh, well, I don't yeah, feel comfortable. I, don't I can't either. speak for everyone, yeah. but I don't like it. And I also think that this, it, it also like really 
rests on the financial problem because there's such a culture of silence about the low pay or sometimes no pay gigs where people will just take the the, the job because they're like, I, I need something, I need to pay my bills, so I'll take this really low rate because also there's this kind of complicity of like, wow, fuck, like I will say no to this rate. I know that in 20 minutes it'll be back up on any kind of website or on Facebook and it'll be advertised and then somebody else will take the rate because we have to. And so people feel really replaceable in that way, especially women, I would say. And um, yeah, yeah. We, we do kind of have a union in the UK called Equity, but the unions are not as strong, for example, as musicians' unions, which will really lobby for the right kind of pay. And what that means is that all of the demographics that I've just talked about, who, who can't afford to you know, work for such ridiculous and badly paid sums, like they get pushed out, therefore. Yeah, it just it should not be that way. You know, the financial precarity and then the lack of security that this creates is a huge part of also why people stop. You know, or they get injured and then there's no way to really access the right healthcare and then people stop because they can't, it's just too painful, you know. So I think that there is a lot to strive towards and maybe I painted it all as like this really utopic, like everyone will make each other feel really good before, but I also have seen the other side of it where it's it's been like a, you're a machine, do what you're told, shut the fuck up, <laughs> tape your tits, plus, you know, lose 10 kilograms, then we'll just get rid of you and find somebody else in a second. And this this can really have a lot of impacts on people's mental health. And also a big part of why like the financial precarity means people can't people can't keep doing what they love. All of this needs to change. And I sure hope it does for for you, for yours, for all those involved. Uh, for the sake of justice, my word, let it change post-haste. Alina, we've covered a lot of ground. I have to ask, is there anything you'd like to discuss that we haven't touched on? Because, of course, I've come to this conversation knowing nothing about dance. I know more now than I did an hour ago. But tell me, what did I miss I think that what interests me a lot as well right now is like what happens with artists and dance artists who reach a mature age. We talked about how the financial precarity is really pushing so many people out. So a lot of people don't then become elders in the community. They get pushed out due to lack of resources or a lack of opportunities or a lack of respect. And then they can't have dignified lives, let's say or recognition that their work is work. And I've also lived in situations where I've been the dancer in my flats and people will be like, oh, you know, you get to do what you love. So <laughs> um, yeah. you're fine. And it's like, well, actually I break my ass. I dance on concrete. I facilitate large groups of people for whom sometimes I'm a surrogate mom. Like it's exhausting. I do love it. I'm hyper privileged to be able to do it. And I'm so fucking lucky that I got to be on this path. But I also have to say, like, it's not a freaking walk from the park. You will get injured. And there could be structures put in place to make it much better. Like, for example, you know, if there's all these abandoned office buildings that people won't go back to, then maybe they could be repurposed as community dance or drama centers and spaces for art and artists. Makes sense to me, Alina. 
Well, I'm glad that you're able to do what you love, despite all of the challenges that it presents to you and others in your community. And it should be enough, but I'm hoping you might help me to drive this train into the station. I have two sort of concluding requests. The first is, if you would be so kind, can you offer up one cultural artifact that informs or somehow embodies your dance practice? It could be a, a poem, a, a song, a film, a book, a painting, whatever. And like, what does this thing say about how you do what you do? So this this is a poem that an amazing teacher called David Pover, he wrote it for our class when we were leaving school. And he wrote, it's a world of infinite wonder, eternally promising thunder for those who seek the truth. The joys are there that I promised. So be fearless and fearlessly honest. Intensely live your youth. I love David Pover. I don't know who can't love David Pover. We are going to make sure that he hears this podcast and hears his poem recited, oh, these many years later. You know, the last season of this podcast, I devoted to the working lives of educators. And I thought about how perfect, indeed, how poetic it would be to have Mr. Pover on the podcast but I couldn't imagine that he would countenance my tomfoolery for this long. So I didn't reach out to him, but he would have been a splendid guest. I'm sure you would agree. Well, that's really funny because when you asked me what guests I'd want to have on the podcast that you should pursue, it was exactly David <laughs> Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay, now I'm going to have to. I did have the instinct, as I said, to get in touch with him. Do you think he would do it? You should ask. Only one way to find out. I just couldn't stand being rejected by him. Well, ask. You never know. Yeah, you never know. Alina Akmatova, this has been a romp. I have enjoyed being in conversation with you so much. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We did it. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, how wonderful. And there you have it, my friends. My conversation with the kind, the clever, the compassionate Alina Akhmatova. She's an amazing person. And I'm so grateful that she spent some time with me. And if you liked this conversation that Alina and I had, do me a favor and shoot this episode to a friend, a family member, a loved one that you think will also like it. And if you love the conversation, head over to patreon.com slash for a living and find a way to support this project. You know, Alina is as much of a source of inspiration to me today as she was almost two decades ago when she was my student in Barcelona. Indeed, she's so inspiring that she inspired a song. And with all the humility in the world, I'd like to now share a song with you that I wrote about my conversation with Alina. 
The song is called Bodies Keep the Score. It was produced and engineered by another former student of mine, Brian Trahan, here in Berlin. I'm singing and holding down the organ. The song features my friend of more than 30 years, Marty Kanjoka, on drums. It features my beautiful bride, Megan Fleming, on vocals. And it also features Megan's beautiful baby brother, Kevin Fleming, on bass, guitar, and backing vocals. And we have a very special feature on this song. It is my pleasure, indeed my honor, to share with you the John F. Kennedy School Berlin High School Choir under the direction of Dr. Joseph Curtis. Now I feel obliged to note here that circumstances were such that Dr. Curtis's students had a grand total of about 30 minutes to rehearse this thing and about 30 minutes to perform it. Moreover, they worked the gig with FFP2 masks covering their mouths. And given those circumstances, indeed, despite those very circumstances, my friends, I tell you, so far as this guy's concerned, they nailed it. So what I'm about to share with you is something of a dream come true. I get to make music with my wife and her brother. I got an old pal on drums. I have creative contributions from students from three different countries. I made a promise to myself that I wasn't going to languish during this pandemic. And despite or maybe even because of all of the humility that goes into sharing this with you, I'll tell you, I'm real proud of this one. Friends, please enjoy Bodies Keep the Score and stay tuned for a little bit more. Drop to my knees and wipe the floor for you Leave behind the voices, come in and let those noises wash through you We hear by feeling bodies, not leaving anybody behind We twirl like whirling dervishes to escape the cage of our minds
That was Bodies Keep the Score. And now, my friends, joining us from beautiful southern England, the poet and the head teacher at the Burgate School, whose poem which he read at the commencement ceremony of Alina and her classmates, the poem that remains a source of inspiration for Alina, and the poem whose final lines drove the chorus of Bodies Keep the Score. Here is my friend, David Pover, reading that poem in its entirety. And after which, for grace and good measure, he shares with us a poem that he penned more recently. When I was young once, I gazed down on lights. The world was full of wonder and dreams. That sparkling, enchanting, promise-filled sight spoke to the soul of a boy with beliefs and confirmed that world I was sure that I knew, a momentary beautiful glimpse of the truth. But that distant, romantic, rose-petaled view has vanished along with that poor, hopeful youth. And it's not just that boy who's faded through time, who's lost sight of that glimmering, brilliant world, who no longer sees every hope as sublime. Time's wrinkled pages are faded and blurred, and joy has been banished to half-believed memory. Waves of nostalgia now drown and confound me, time that once promised so much, now the enemy. But somewhere still lost in that purest deep part of me, is that vision of wonder that held me enchanted and that hope and belief that I once took for granted. I know the truth in that memory of lights and I know the eternal beauty of night. It's a world of infinite wonder, eternally promising thunder to those who seek the truth. The joys are there that I promised, so be fearless and fearlessly honest. Intensely live your youth. Morning in Morocco. I try sometimes to be aware that there's a world elsewhere. The path we walk down every day is not the only way, and lives are lived and people die beneath another sky. All round is brown, bare, rock and sand, and barren mountains stand. Sad donkeys drag their weary loads along straight, dusty roads. Behind the distant city hums to the beat of different drums. The sudden widow's wail was shrill, and all the world stood still. The car, the corpse just lying there. The heat hung in the air. Three men appeared and talked about the life just now snuffed out and smoked beneath the midday sun. The widow hugged someone. The air seemed heavy. Time slowed down. And later in a town, a woman with her load walked by beneath that same fierce sky. Inside, we four sat all alone. The station's walls, bare stone, reminded me of our own death and every precious breath. That night, I saw a single star hang flickering by the moon. And later still the sun rose, far beyond the farthest dune. The sand and shadow silent still upon that distant hill. The sun climbs slowly in the sky, while fleeting life flies by. <laughs>